This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 27, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Will President Obama change marijuana's place as a controlled substance before he leaves office? What powers should Congress have when it comes to how newspapers and others talk about candidates for federal office? I speak with Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth of Louisville, Kentucky, about both subjects, including his constitutional amendment that would radically change both the First Amendment and campaigns for federal office. A few years ago, uh, you, uh, Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, and uh, some others in Kentucky sort of got together to fight on behalf of legalizing hemp as a federal matter uh, so Kentucky could make use of that as an agricultural crop. What is the state of that today and what changes uh, do you think ought to be made down the road? Well, what Rand and Thomas and I did was actually we testified before a state uh, Senate committee in Kentucky to get the necessary legislation in Kentucky to allow them to grow hemp because it was also against state law to to grow hemp. So we went down and testified and it was uh, pretty much a a unique event and uh, got a lot of attention that the three of us would testify together. And interestingly, when we went into this committee, they said they didn't think they had the votes to do it. And when we left, it passed unanimously. And I, I don't think that was necessarily because our arguments were so effective. It was just that I think they saw that there was a bipartisan uh, sentiment for this. And uh, anyway, so Kentucky passed the law. Then the federal government had to act as well. And what the federal government did, and this was Rand working in the Senate pr- predominantly and Mitch McConnell helping also, was they passed a pilot program authorization basically to allow educational institutions to grow hemp for research purposes. So it was a pretty half, halfway, not even halfway measure uh, in terms of, of ultimately legalizing hemp. But that's happened, and now a number, University of Kentucky, University of Louisville, and others are growing hemp all over the state as part of this research program. So what is the federal uh, role in making that process, allowing states to sort of do what they want with respect to that? Well, I think I certainly believe that there should be no restrictions on growing hemp. Uh, the science is pretty clear. The hemp is not a hallucinogen and <laughs> doesn't uh, contain the kind of uh, uh, narcotic effect that uh, other forms of marijuana do. The, the, only, the only argument I've heard from police is that there could be some confusion. They say that it's hard to detect them uh, particularly when you're flying over them. But if you look at hemp plants versus marijuana plants, and we've looked at all the pictures, it, it, they're pretty distinct. And I don't think that would really be an issue. Uh, hemp is used in so many different products in so many different ways. It, it uh, I don't want to say it's a mir- miracle crop, but it's close to it. And uh, the idea that uh, we sh- would prohibit it is just... Uh, seems to me to be counterproductive and not, uh, you know, we're missing a big, big opportunity in terms of economic development. Kentucky has the perfect climate for it. As and, we know, yeah, for as we, many years of experience. Many years of experience. So anyway, it's, uh, it's underway. I think clearly if you look at the trends around the country, you look at Colorado, you look at, uh, at uh, Oregon, the other states that have uh, – legalized recreational use of marijuana, uh, the idea that we would somehow 
prohibit hemp is just just seems like so 18th century or something. But um, I think it's going to change. It's it, there's no question it's going to change, and uh, it'll change pretty quickly. I think. But because those plants are uh, botanically similar, uh, does federal law like the Controlled Substances Act need to be altered in order to accommodate it? Well, I don't think there's any question about that. It does, and, and I think we I think we need to reschedule marijuana as well. Uh, Where would you put it? <laughs> well, the actually, pres- the president has the option of descheduling. Uh, I think it should be descheduled. I really do. I, I think right now the the writing's on the wall. If states want to continue to make it illegal, they can do that. Uh, but we we now have this strange conflict where we have states that are actually violating federal law and the, fe- and the federal government saying we're not just not going to enforce federal law. That just doesn't seem to be a smart policy. Well, it's also, it's also a temporary fix because any future Congress can say, well, now we're going to enforce federal law here. And it, it's not a durable – it's not something states can trust, really. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> I, don't, I certainly would say you can't trust Congress to, to do something that makes sense. For sure. But anyway, I, again, this conflict of laws seems to me to be something that is really intolerable. And so I, I would rather see the federal government declassify marijuana rather than go out and start enforcing the laws against these states. There has been a little bit of pressure applied to the, the president because he can do that. Uh, it's within his uh, mandate as president to uh, decide what goes on what schedules uh, under the DEA. Do you think that's likely? Oh, I can see an executive order coming down on that in end of November, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I, I think that's one of those things that going out the door that would make a lot of sense. Uh, and we're recording this on 420, which is the popular holiday, I guess, for uh, pot smokers. And um, do you expect uh, Kentucky to move ahead with some form of medical marijuana or uh, legalizing recreational marijuana? I, I think we'll be one of the last states to do recreational marijuana, although it's interesting because the joke is that it's Kentucky's largest cash crop. Uh, I, I don't think that's changed very much. But I, I think there's a great deal of bipartisan sentiment to, to uh, relax the laws on medical marijuana. I think that'll happen probably next legislative session, even with a Republican uh, a Senate. I think most people understand that there is a great deal of science and uh, humanitarianism behind um, allowing medical marijuana. But even even that, uh, to the extent that it's uh, the president's fiat to to say this goes here and now it goes here, and the law treats it very differently based on that. Congress has been sort of unwilling, I think, to interfere with states in the last few years. Uh, Is there going to be any move to put into law some sort of protection that basically says, we're stepping down, like Congress is sort of stepping down on making this a federal law enforcement priority? I haven't heard any uh, of, of much interest in Congress about for doing that. Now, there are people like my friend Steve Cohen, who on the Judiciary Committee, who would certainly like to do it. Uh, Bob Goodlatte, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, I would doubt has any interest in doing that. So the, the personalities probably aren't right for getting that done right now. All right. You're a big proponent of campaign finance reform and have been for many years. We're 
this week, just this week, there have been you know large protests uh, at, at the Capitol. Ben and Jerry. Uh, among the, among yes. the people arrested, and then they announced it on their corporate website that they were arrested. Uh, and you've introduced a constitutional amendment a couple of times that would uh, – well, what would it do? Well, basically what my amendment – and there are, there are a number of constitutional amendments that try to address the Citizens United decision. What mine basically says is that uh, campaign expenditures do not constitute free speech under the First Amendment. And – protected speech under the First Amendment. Uh, others deal with the, the issue of corporations as individuals, but I don't think that's the right approach. Again, the whole concept of uh, Citizens United and Mitch McConnell's arguments all the time are that uh, money equals speech in the political arena, and free speech in the political arena, and, and so mine addresses that. I, it, obviously, they're not going to go anywhere. But, you know, I think the marketplace is actually going to take care of the problem of money in politics. And I think we're seeing it right in front of our eyes. The paradigm for campaigning is changing radically. Uh, it, it's turning to so social media. Uh, Donald Trump, I just saw the number, spent 60-something thousand dollars in New York total <laughs> and won 60-something percent of the vote, whereas the other candidates spent a lot of money on TV advertising. The, the more you watch campaigns, and I study them pretty closely, the more you realize people aren't watching TV television ads, period. Uh, more than half of TV viewing now is done on a recorded basis, and that's going to continue to grow. So most of the people aren't seeing the ads. The ones who see them don't like them, and they, more importantly, they don't believe them. And that's, I think, the most critical factor now is particularly negative ads, which are the constitute comprise the biggest share of advertising. People don't believe them, no matter how outrageous the claim is. So, I think we're going to see this continue to grow, and so the need for raising tons of money will evaporate. So the the marketplace, you mean the marketplace of communication, exactly uh, that. Consumers, even political consumers, are fairly savvy when it comes to understanding the relative credibility of a political promise uh, or an, an attack on on some opponent. They probably understand that. Well, I'm sure I'm not getting the whole story on that. Like when some candidate uh, who was a criminal defense attorney defended a criminal. Uh, just imagine. Yes. Uh, so, but your amendment deals with what Congress gets to regulate with respect to. Uh, speech, and you argue that a corporate expenditure or an in-kind equivalent uh, cannot be treated as speech as it relates to candidates for federal office, even if that communication doesn't endorse or advocate the defeat of that candidate. That seems fairly sweeping. Well, I don't know how you know you're trying to. I mean, I think yes. you're consistent. Yes. I think you're completely right. intellectually consistent on this. Yeah. Where where I think a lot of people say, well, let's carve out. Me, a media exemption, which you don't right. do. No, but but that is the role for Congress. I mean, it, basically, if if you eliminate the the First Amendment protections to political advertising of any part of any kind, then you allow Congress the the flexibility to come in and say, as we do in in many instances, that unless you advocate the election or defeat of a candidate, magic uh, words, magic words, then. Uh, that's that's fine, and you can you can continue to spend as much as you want to advocate a, a position on an issue. So to educate, as it were. When you say in kind equivalent, I'm thinking of uh, Oprah Winfrey 
uh, having Barack Obama on her show and you know saying very nice things about him and uh, promoting his candidacy and then eventually of course endorsing him is that is that well, again, I think if Congress were writing the law, that that, that would not be. Uh, but Congress, they, they would, under under this amendment, Congress would have the power to would have the power to, to do that to yes. prohibit Harpo Incorporated from <laughs> yes for some from distributing any funds for the purpose of sending Oprah to Iowa to endorse candidate Obama. Yeah, they would have the power to do that. But what about say the the New York Times endorsing candidates? I mean, that's clearly an in kind equivalent of a of a corporate expenditure. And it probably uh, well, is a corporate expenditure. But there you have, I think, a, a clear protection of the First Amendment for the f- uh, free press. But again, under your under your amendment, that wouldn't be the case. Well, it depends on how you would define in kind. Uh, so if, if um, let's say, Campbell's Soup put, or maybe Wheaties is a better example, Wheaties put uh, a picture of a candidate on its boxes and said, vote for uh, Tony the Tiger, uh, that would be the kind of in-kind contribution I think we'd more likely be talking about, particularly from a corporate perspective. So Dr. Bronner's soap bottle can't say, vote for this guy, because we like him. He's the best uh, on their bottles of soap. Right. Yeah, that would be an in-kind contribution, I think. All right. But now, it has this other section of, of your amendment would replace the entire campaign finance system with one that uh, only allows the federal government to provide funds to qualified candidates. Uh, And for, I would imagine, libertarians, for socialists, for greens, that word qualified is a very, uh, a term that raises red flags. Well, I'm I'm sure it would. Uh, it's interesting when you know when you get in this arena and you see the 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 great diversity of systems uh, in Kentucky to run for Congress, you only have to have two members of your party sign your registration forms and pay five hundred dollars. In other states, you have to have five thousand signatures. So, qualifying for candidacy is very different in, in different places. Within, within part, within major parties. Within major parties. If, you, if you're uh, a reform party or a libertarian or something like that, the, the burden is quite a bit higher to in, 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 in different places. Um, but I, I think, for instance, um, I'm the co-sponsor of a bill that, that John Sarbanes has introduced, uh, which creates a modified public um, public financing uh, system. And there you have to have a certain number of small contributors. And basically the small contributors get their, their contributions matched on a five-to-one basis by, by the government. So, and, and again, the qualifying... Uh, they qualify by raising money. You can write a qualification system any way you want to, but um, you know the idea behind the constitutional amendment. Since I obviously I know it's not going anywhere, is to provoke the discussion, and this is the kind of discussion that we hope it provokes. Alternatives to the current system, yeah. and there are many. I mean, you know, Arizona has has a system that. Uh, uses state funds. Connecticut does as well. There are a variety of options, and we. But we want the American people to talk about the way our campaigns are run. And right now, I think probably the 
again, I think the paradigm's changing for campaigning, but I think more important issue right now is the way we conduct our elections and the issues of early voting and whether Tuesday voting is appropriate and you know whether we ought to do it all by mail as as Oregon and Colorado do. Um, I think that's a more important discussion to have right now. So uh, because we're having that discussion right now, I'll, I'll throw a couple more examples at you to see whether or not under your amendment you think it would be protected as uh, speech. Uh, uh, ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, or I may have that backwards, uh, make some pints of ice cream and Bernie Sanders put Bernie's promotion, promoting Bernie Sanders on them and give them to the campaign. That's... I think that would be an in-kind contribution. In-kind contribution. Yes. Um, Dr. Bronner's, we mentioned. Um, John Fishman, he's the drummer for Fish, uh, is a obviously from Vermont, is a big Bernie Sanders fan, playing a, playing for free at a benefit to promote Bernie Sanders' candidacy. That's a good question. I, I'm not sure how it would come down on that one. So uh, my, my last option is uh, under under your the section the second section of your amendment that creates a federal uh, system. Uh, would Eugene McCarthy have been able to run for president, or uh, because he took huge contributions from like four or five super rich guys to take his uh, anti-Vietnam War platform to the people and is credited with chasing Lyndon Johnson out of the race for having to do it. Would he have been able to do that under this amendment? Um, yeah, I think he would have been able to, to run under that, that amendment. But again, the amendments... But he would have, would have had to have been a qualified candidate and receive funds only from the federal government. Right, right. We, 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 the rules for what constitutes qualifying would have to be written. That, you know, the amendment doesn't do that just directs, essentially, if it were enacted and ratified, it would direct the states, I mean, direct the Congress to create a qualifying system. John Yarmuth is a Democratic U.S. representative from Kentucky's 3rd District. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.